Hi, I'm your host, Bella Page, and welcome to the Post-Concussion Podcast, all about life after experiencing a concussion. Help us make the invisible injury become visible. The Post-Concussion Podcast is strictly an information podcast about concussions and post-concussion syndrome. It does not provide nor substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or another qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are simply intended to spark discussion about concussions and post-concussion syndrome. Welcome to today's episode of the Post-Concussion Podcast with myself, Bill Page, and today's guest, Hilary Boko. Hilary has a master's degree in speech-language pathology from the George Washington University. She has spent her career focused on treating neurological issues, including post-concussion syndrome, dementia, stroke, and neurodegenerative disorders. Welcome to the show, Hilary. Thanks so much for having me. So to start, could you tell everyone a bit about your own post-concussion experience and then what interested you in speech therapy? Yeah, so I had a concussion when I was in my first semester of graduate school for being a speech-language pathologist. And it's one of those things where it was just this freak thing that happened. I was rushing to go to work at the time I worked for an eye doctor while I was in school and I basically opened a door into my head. I bent over at the same time as I opened the door to my bathroom and just boom, whack, you know, it hurt. I had said some choice words and then I walked to the metro, went to work, walked, you know, took the train, walked home. And, you know, the whole time I was like, man, I have a headache, but, you know, I hit myself with a door, not a big deal. And finally, I talked to my dad and he was like, you know, are you laying down? I said, yeah, he goes, stand up for me. So I stood up and I got really, really dizzy. And he was like, okay, I think you should see somebody. So I did the classic, you know, immediate post-concussion thing where you don't have very good judgment. Since I had just moved there, I didn't have a doctor. So I drove myself to the ER thinking nothing about that. Like i never drove in that city really before. And then I took my anatomy textbook with me because I had a test the next day. And so I'm sitting there in the ER reading a textbook and the physician finally comes in and she's like, no, I will give you a note. You do not have to take that test tomorrow. And they diagnosed me with a concussion, sent me home. And I just, I was having terrible headaches the week following that. And I just, I didn't feel like myself. I felt nauseous. It was just so I ended up going back to the ER again. I don't have, didn't have a doctor and they referred me to a neurologist. And what I'm finding out, you know, what I found out then and what I find out for most of my patients, I called the neurologist. I said, oh, we'll see you in three months. I'm like what? But I have a concussion. I have a head injury. And they're like, yep, everybody else does too. So it was a really interesting time because I was already in graduate school for speech language pathology. I knew I had wanted to go into that just based on I really like languages. I took a lot of languages in, in school. So it was interesting to be part of a program that really does understand concussion, but still realize how difficult it was. I ended up getting a vision evaluation. They tested me and said that I was reading at an eighth grade level, which was shocking to me. Like trying to absorb graduate school material on, you know, basically my eyes were reading at an eighth grade level. Very, very hard. Trying to get accommodations was harder than I thought. So it's one of the things that really even pushed me even further to go into the neuro aspect, speech language pathology. 
And I can really emphasize with people, you know, I'm really big advocate of getting accommodations letters early, trying to tell people this is, you know, you have to follow up on it. These are the things that you can be approved for. Yes, it's very common that you're waiting on a doctor for many months and that there's things to do in the meantime, you know, before you can see the neurologist to check on it. So that's kind of my story. It's one of those like freak things you'd never, you know, it wasn't a car accident. It wasn't a sports injury, but it took me about a year to fully recover because I made the decision to stay in school and I was still working at the time. So doing all of that while also trying to recover from head injury, as many people can attest, is not the easiest thing to do. So For sure. It's really not easy, especially when you keep going, because I think that delayed a lot of my recoveries because I just didn't stop. Right. I didn't yeah. stop going to school. I didn't stop playing in sports. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot of things I didn't stop. And it's hard to just halt your life and then, you know, do therapy because yeah, especially people that also don't understand because you look okay. Right. So there's that aspect too. And I get the doctor thing. I think there was one doctor I've seen. It was a year, 13 months was what the appointment was booked for. And I was like, Wow. Okay. So I'm sitting in a doctor's room and you're telling me a year and a bit from now, I will see this other doctor you want me to see. I'm like, interesting how that happened. Yeah. And it's crazy because, you know, people think that they need to see a doctor before they initiate therapy, which unless there's an insurance issue with that, it's more often not the case. You know, I don't always need to have a referral from a physician to see a patient. And so it means that I can start treating them before, you know, basically you don't just sit there for 13 months and hope you know, everything's fine and gets better on its own because you can do work in the meantime and then ideally, hopefully not even need that appointment. But it's, yep, it's a system. So yeah, mm-hmm. I find COVID has made it worse. So much worse. Yep. Nobody went to the doctor and now everybody's trying to go to the doctor. Things are pushed. Yeah. It can be really, really difficult to know that the care is out there and to know what you need to do. I honestly had no idea about vision therapy when I had my concussion and it was only because I worked for an eye doctor and she told me, hey, go see this vision therapist. He's going to test you. I'm like, why can't you test me? She goes, well, I'm just an optometrist. I, you know, your vision is fine. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, your eye health is fine. You see 2020 still. So I was just thinking, well, this is something, you know, she's being overly protective of me. And then I found out, man, I had some serious, some serious vision issues going on, which did help to validate why school was so hard. Because that vision therapy appointment was probably not until at least six months after. Yeah, for sure. Well, it's kind of nice to get like reassurance that something's wrong. Right. Yeah. There's a reason I think things are hard. And I clearly had an excellent support system with my professors. We joked, you know, when I actually saw the neurologist, I had an MRI and we used my MRI pictures in neuroanatomy class that semester. It's like, well, here's Hillary's brain. Let's take a look at it. You know, nothing was, clearly nothing was wrong with my brain since concussions don't show up on the MRIs, but it was just, it was kind of interesting to see that. So do you want to give some details of what a speech language pathologist does, just so people have some background? Sure, I'd love to. It's actually quite a very generalized degree. A lot of people, when they hear speech therapists, they think that I'm going to work with kids with autism or kids who can't say their R's. And that is a completely appropriate thing for a speech language pathologist to do. It's just not what I specialized in. So in general, we can do things. We can do pediatrics. We can do adults, geriatrics. We can focus on neurological diseases, things like autism and ADHD, articulation, 
social pragmatic disorders. So people who maybe say things that they shouldn't could be seen by a speech therapist. So, you know, stuttering is another one. So it all is really kind of dependent on what you decide to specialize in when you're in grad school and what you spend your career doing. But I'm technically trained in all of it. And then I just have a lot more training and expertise within the neurological world. Okay. Yeah. No, it's definitely interesting because I think you're right. A lot of people just assume they hear that kids go to speech therapy. And then if you've never been around like the brain injury community, you wouldn't know that there's a lot more actually that they can do. Yeah. So it's important to know that you can benefit so many other people. And it's so interesting. I have a one-year-old who's speech delayed and it's like, I clearly knew that he was delayed. I knew what the milestones were and I was looking at him, but I didn't know how to treat him. I didn't, I've never worked in early intervention. I didn't really specialize in pediatrics in any way. And I don't think I've ever treated anybody younger than 12. So it was like, oh, my kid needs speech therapy. He's one. I don't know how to do it. I have a degree in this and I don't know how to do it. And it's been so nice, you know, having the speech therapist that we see, you know, she's teaching me so much and vice versa. She'll ask me questions about things. And it's like, wow, you know, we have the same degree and just have completely different, you know, practical experiences out there. So. For sure. So when a concussion survivor comes to see you, what can your typical therapy session look like? Yeah. So we always start with a clinical intake session, which is really, let me get to know you, what's going on with you. We do talk about the injury itself. How did it happen? So, you know, that gives me good information about kind of the force of the impact. And then we talk about what are the symptoms. I will always cover physical and emotional symptoms as well. I don't treat them, but because they, you know, if you have a headache, I know that you're going to have cognitive difficulties. So I always want to know, how's your sleep? Do you get headaches? Do you have slight sound sensitivity, stuff like that? Are you in any other, you know, therapies, PT, vision therapy, that type of stuff? And then a lot of background. I want to know prior history. It's important to know if there were prior concussions or if there were a history of learning disabilities. It's not to say that it will necessarily change how I treat the patient, but it's just helpful to know, you know, kind of what was the baseline beforehand, talk about education and occupational history, and then we get into, hey, what's going on now? So what's hard for you now? And I break it into four cognitive domains. We have memory, attention, language and communication, and executive functioning skills. And that's a big buzzword for us that most people have never heard of before. And so, but executive functioning is really the skills that you might need to run a company. So you need good decision-making and planning, time management, problem-solving, all those really high-level things that we do day in and day out just kind of get classified as executive function skills. And then from there, I, you know, I tell them this is how I think I'm going to be helping you. I do end up doing a lot of education in that first session. And then, you know, we go from there based on whatever the frequency I feel like is appropriate and just keep checking in. And sometimes we'll do testing depending on whether that's appropriate or not. We have objective testing measures we can give. And sometimes I think it's not necessary or it's not appropriate at that time. And we'll just start based off of their subjective symptoms. Yeah, it's actually quite a lot more than I think people would think when you say like everything you go over before you even start, right? And just that first appointment. And it's really common with a lot of situations. You go into that first appointment and 
it's more like a get to know you session and you need it that. Is, yeah. It's it's that building rapport. You know, sometimes I'm open with the hey, you know, I've I've been there before, I've had my own concussion. Sometimes I'm not, depending on if I think the patient, you know, would benefit from hearing it. And I always ask the question, it's like, okay, you're here for your, you know, cognitive therapy evaluation. Do you know what I do? And I would say 99% of the time people say, no, I have no idea why I'm here. (laughs) Okay, well, let me tell you why. (laughs) So those are typically an hour long. I spend an hour with my patients for the first session to just listen to what they're telling me and then tell them what I, you know, what is my role in their recovery. Yeah, well, that all sounds really great. And we have so much more to talk about. But everyone, you can learn more about Hillary and her work at coloradobrainrecovery.com. But with that, we're going to take a break. Therospecs are therapeutic blue light glasses for people with brain injuries, post-concussion headache, and photophobia. They filter up to 25 times more of the light that causes pain and other symptoms, making them more effective than typical blue light glasses. So if fluorescence, screens, or sunlight feel too bright or trigger your symptoms, try Therospecs risk-free for 60 days and see if you can find the protection and relief you need. Visit therospecs.com Bella and use code Bella15 for $15 off your order. Welcome back to the Post-Concussion Podcast with myself, Bella Page, and today's guest, Hilary Boko. So something I wanted to ask was when should someone consider seeing a speech therapist? Because a lot of us think if they're having trouble speaking, and that would be when they would come see you. But otherwise, when else should they come see you? That's a really good question and something that we are trying to educate kind of just the general public and physicians about. More often than not, I'm not treating speech. I don't necessarily treat, you know, people are having difficulty talking. Word finding is one thing for sure with concussion, but it's a lot of the really high level things that you would do within memory or attention. So things like multitasking get really hard. Things like using your working memory, which would be something like tracking your whole schedule in your head for the day or rearranging your schedule when something pops up and those high-level executive functioning skills that we talked about. Those are the things that I actually treat the most. And it's, I always tell people, it's like the day before the injury, you were functioning one way. And then the next day you were not functioning in that way. And my job is to really try to help you get back to whatever you were doing beforehand. So you might be able to go to work and take care of your kids or go to school or something like that, but it might not be as easy as it was before. And there's always something that you can do to help support your recovery during that time. So the sooner the better, absolutely. You know, I love seeing patients who are just super, super like fresh off of an injury, that really acute stage, because typically it means you require fewer sessions because you know... I do a lot of stuff about not pushing through your symptoms. How do you do what you need to do while you're recovering? And if you don't get that in the acute stage, you're kind of setting yourself up to have worse symptoms as you go along. And then clearly that takes a little bit more time to get better. That's not to say that you cannot get better if I don't see you a week after your injury. I've seen patients many years past their injury or people who have repetitive head injuries over time, you know, it's like, well, my last injury was years ago, but 
I'm realizing I'm having these issues and, you know, somebody told me about cognitive therapy, I think it can help. So there's no wrong time to be seen. It's really just you kind of have to be aware of what's going on with you and then open to the fact that there is something happening. But know that there's support and there are things that you can do out there. Yeah, and I think it's so great that there is so many different options to come. It's not just for speech. But something you did mention was the word finding. And that is something we talk about a lot because a lot of people have a lot of trouble with it. And, you know, even I have trouble with it some days. And especially if I have a bad headache, I go to talk and I go, I don't even know what we're talking about now. I don't know what I was talking about. (laughs) My brain is blank. So do you have any tips for individuals who have difficulty with word finding? Yes. So there are some really good strategies. But the biggest thing that I want people to understand is that conversation is about communication. So it doesn't matter if I don't find the exact word that I want. If I can get my point across, then I've communicated it. Okay. And that's one of the biggest things I tell people because word finding only gets worse as you're more and more anxious about the fact that you can't find the word that you want to say. Like you will not be getting it. So there's kind of a window of time where you're good that you can't find the word. And then if it takes too long, I mean, you're just going to build yourself up and it's just not going to happen. So when you are encountering a word finding issue, one of the best things that you can do is to describe it. We call that circumlocution. So if you've ever played a game like Taboo or headbands or heads up or something where you basically have to describe something to somebody else without saying the word and they have to guess it. That's pretty much word finding strategy in a nutshell. I actually will give those games as homework to my patients to say, hey, you're working on something really functional, but go have fun with your family and do this game. And so, you know, if you're trying to describe, oh, it's that person in the movie and he was in this movie and he was in, you know, he's married to this actress. And I go, yeah, I know who you're talking about. It doesn't matter that you can't necessarily find that right word. Other things you can do is try, you know, basically try to say another word. So if, you know, if I say, hey, Bella, what did you have for breakfast this morning? And you go, you're trying to get to the word banana, but you tell me you had fruit. That works too. You know, I'm probably going to leave it there and say, oh, that sounds delicious. And even if I say, oh, cool, what kind of fruit did you have? And I'm really interested in your breakfast. You have had some time to kind of have that successful communication exchange where you answered the question with fruit and then, you know, that anxiety level tends to kind of reset. And so then you're more likely to be able to get to banana if you needed to. I really love the point of getting your point across because like you said, it doesn't matter if you say the wrong word or a word in relation to it, because as long as they understand what you're trying to communicate, that's the important piece. And exactly. it's important to remember that because like a lot of us, you know, you beat yourself up for forgetting a word or saying the wrong word. Or there was a few times where I'd say a word that was completely unrelated to the conversation. Yeah, and then yeah. I'd be like, I don't actually know why that <laughs> came out of my mouth. But yeah. And that, that has to do with like that access. So word finding, you know, in the scientific terminology is word retrieval fluency. So it's about going to retrieve the word in your brain. So it's still there. I like to tell patients it's not memory. You haven't forgotten the word. You don't you didn't forget the name of your grandchild, but in that moment in time you couldn't go get it. And then it's the fluency aspect of it too. There's a time component to conversation. If you ask me a question and I go, uh, you know, there's only so long that I can have this like awkward silence before I need to say something or it looks weird. 
And so that's kind of part of it too. It's you might be able to get it, but you're not getting the time that you need to get it. So even sometimes giving yourself some more time is a really helpful thing. So like if you get asked a question, I do this a lot with interview skills. If you get asked a question and you're not really prepared to answer it yet, repeat the question. So if they say, hey, you know, Bella, tell me about one of your strengths and, you know, you're kind of frozen. Instead of just dead silence, you would say something like, oh, that's a really interesting question. Thanks for asking that. One of my biggest strengths is that I. So you have all of that time where you basically said nothing, but you're able to think about the question and not have just this dead silence. So you give yourself a bit more time to think is also another strategy. Yeah, that's really great. Thank you so much for sharing all those because it is just a really common thing that a lot of people tend to get frustrated with. And another thing that is really common is some people, we had this conversation before, they think they have a stutter. And a lot of the time you said that's not the case because it's about you're speaking faster then your brain is producing words essentially, right? So do you want to explain that a little bit? Yeah. So I never want to like invalidate the fact that somebody tells me that they have a stutter because stuttering is what they're doing, but it's not like a developmental stutter. I don't treat it the same way as I would a fluency disorder, which is something that, you know, we see a lot in kids or sometimes we'll see after somebody has a traumatic experience. Those strategies are going to be things like, addressing the blocks in your speech and using, you know, easy onset. And I don't do that at all with my patients because it's more about the fact that, as you said, your mouth is moving faster than your brain is. So we're dealing with the processing speed issue, which I would say, you know, pretty much anybody who's had a concussion can state like, yes, I did not process information as quickly as I did before. And hopefully it got better. And so it's really just like, you know what you want to say in your head, but just those thoughts are just not coming out as quickly as your mouth thinks that they can. And so the easiest thing to do is actually just slow down your rate of speech a little bit. If you speak a little bit slower, you give yourself a little bit of time, you're less likely to stutter because you won't be stumbling over trying to find the words. You're able to find the words and then you can express them. Mm, I really like that. Yeah, just slow down. That's a really common thing with head injuries. Yeah, I was about to say that isn't most, you know, attention, slow down, memory, slow down, (laughs) executive functioning, slow down. Yeah, it's allowing yourself to just accommodate the change in your processing speed. I always tell people, your processor slowed down a little bit, your brain did, but the world around you doesn't slow down. So if you try to do everything exactly the same way that you did before, you're going to be stumbling over yourself. And so there's just, you know, slow down is a very easy thing for me to tell people. It's not necessarily the easiest thing to implement. And I know that when we talk about very functional, specific examples when I talk to a patient about it. Well, everything you have said so far has already been so helpful. But is there anything else you would like to add before we end today's episode? You know, one of the biggest things is just know that the education that is out there about concussion is still kind of lagging behind the times. There's so much newer research out there that shows that, you know, things like sitting in a dark room for two weeks is not what we want you to be doing. We actually, you know, want you to be physically active and cognitively active as you are, especially physically if you're allowed by your doctor. If you have an injury, clearly don't exercise. But, you know, using the brain is what we want to do, but there's a way to do it so that you're not overdoing it. That's going to be the biggest thing is don't overdo it. And just think about, you know, if something is bothering you, 
figure out who can maybe help you with that. Because as you mentioned earlier, there's so many people that are there, you know, there's vision therapy, there's physical therapy, there's vestibular, there's counseling, there's cognitive therapy. There's so many things out there that you could be using to help support your recovery and to make it as fast as it can be. You know, don't be afraid to ask for it. Even if your doctor doesn't necessarily know what cognitive therapy can do, if you say, hey, you know, I really think cognitive therapy would be helpful for me, that doctor will very likely write a prescription and say, yep, go get evaluated by a cognitive therapist. So, you know, it's hard to be the patient, to be the one that's injured, to go and advocate for yourself. But unfortunately, post-concussion, that is, that's what we're dealing with right now until the world gets on board with what post-concussion looks like. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, yeah, just advocate for yourself and... If you think something is wrong, there probably is something wrong and it can be addressed. Yeah, for sure. And I just wanted to say thank you so much for joining us today because it is true. Advocating for yourself is one of the biggest things with concussion, especially because nobody is seeing what you're going through. So if you're not going to advocate for yourself, no one else is. Exactly. Yeah. So thank you just so much for sharing all of your insights and work with concussions. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. I just wanted to say thank you. The podcast is just over six months old and I couldn't be happier with the response. If you truly love the podcast, please consider leaving a tip in our support the podcast tip jar found at the bottom of our episode description. All tips are greatly appreciated and help cover costs of the show. Has your life been affected by concussions? Join our podcast by getting in touch. Thank you so much for listening to the Post-Concussion Podcast and be sure to help us educate the world about the reality of concussions by giving us a share. And to learn more, don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe.